pretty amazing to be on the Connectal Network um, that was created to connect people with conversations, something that is going to be incredibly important for 2020 and beyond. It's one of the most important skills that we need to look at, and we have this beautiful platform that was created with a lot of um, thoughtfulness and ability to look at different topics and really dive deep. Um, and so you can, you can look at the different channels that Connectal offers and different conversations from sustainability to leadership to people. And it's really about making change in the world and looking at things from a different perspective, which is why I'm so excited to be here today to talk about how you can unleash the creator within you, um, because each one of us has one. My name is Ayala Barron. Um, I fired myself in corporate America a while ago and I'm an author and just um, really looking at how do we create a healthy world moving forward. So Tim, maybe you can say a little bit about yourself and then introduce Eric and then we could start our conversation. Um, <laughs> no, I'm Tim McDonald and I um, am the former director of community at Huffington Post and I'm currently uh, working as a director of membership for a trade association and writing a book um, for the first time in my life called The Fear Advantage. And that's what kind of brought me together again with Eric um, because uh, we worked in the past at a startup uh, back when I was in Chicago. And then we've stayed connected ever since. And I saw him last year post about um, this creator course of authoring a book and I jumped on it. We had a call and here I am, have my manuscript done and I uh, have my crowdfunding campaign going for it. And it's like, it's happening. And I think this is the, the most exciting part of today for me is like really understanding, like I never considered myself an author and to be an author, you have to be a creator. And to, I feel that all of us have it within us. It just like, I'm really looking forward to discovering a little bit more about what that means to each of us and, and how we can bring that out, not only in ourselves, but in, and encourage others to bring it out in themselves. So, um, Eric, I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> well, great. Well, uh, this is a really fun topic, I think. And I think, you know, what's interesting about this idea is, you know, I have, I, uh, I have three young kids. So I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. And so uh, you should imagine seeing me when I'm not this you know, tired with, with everything. But I think what's so interesting about it is that like, you know, they see themselves as creators. Like they're creating things, even, you know, the three-year-old is creating pieces of art and showing them off and they're creating stories and adventures. And in some ways, as we start to like get older, we start to lose that, you know, that feeling that we can create. And it's, it's interesting. There's uh, there was some research by a, uh, that was done by a venture capitalist. And he was looking at sort of the fact that today, the, the powerful tools that we have at our fingertips, on our, on our phones, you know, on our laptops to create, are, are, we've never had this before. The, the fact that we can use, create videos and we can create, you know, words and we can create audio and all these sorts of things at our fingertips is unlike we've ever seen in human history. And yet he did some math at it to sort of see how many people would fall into that, what he would call creators, people who are using these tools to create things versus how many people are just using these tools to consume. And it was staggering to sort of see, but you know, according to his estimates, based on all of these technologies, less than 10% of people are using the, the powerful tools we have to create to actually create. And I think that's what's sort of the, the, the challenging part about it. And one of the things that I find to be sort of the biggest sort of opportunity today is that I think that we need to give people safe places 
to create um, because that's the only way we grow. And you know, I, I spent a lot of time doing some research on this sort of broader question. So I'm a professor at Georgetown. And one of my questions that I wanted to understand is, what do people today do that are happy and that are successful in their lives? And so there was a big bunch of research that was done to sort of understand, you know, they looked at over 30,000 college graduates and then they wanted to understand, you know, who was thriving in that group? Who are the people that were satisfied with their life path and were satisfied with their career path? And it's crazy to think, but only one out of eight people, about 12% of people are satisfied with those two things, which is sort of shocking <laughs> to think about, like what in the world is, is happening there? And so they wanted to figure out, okay, like we got a big problem on our hands. That's the number of people that are thriving. And so they wanted to figure out what did those two people, what did those, pe those one people do different than the seven people? What was that thing? And so they went back to their college and graduate school experiences and they looked at everything, like what school they went to, what jobs they were in, what majors they were in. They couldn't find anything of those things that mattered. So if you went to the best school or the worst school, had nothing to do with your satisfaction level. They only found that two things really matter to those people that were thriving, those people, the one versus the seven. Number one, all of them worked on a project in college that was meaningful to them and took longer than a semester. They worked on something, they created something meaningful. And number two, they developed a mentor-like relationship with the faculty. And so what that's led me to realize is that like, we can't blame people for not being able to sort of harness the creators. We have to basically give them safe communities and safe tools to do it. And that's one of the things that made me totally shift the entire way I was teaching. And so I was teaching for a consumer audience. I would stand up in front of the audience and for five years, I sat there and I lectured. And I told them all these things and I wondered, why the hell aren't they doing anything with this? I'm giving them all this wisdom. And it wasn't until I stopped and realized like, they don't want me to sort of help them consume more stuff. They want me to help them create. And that was when it unlocked for me. And it shifted the entire way that I thought about it. And over the last sort of five years, I, or excuse me, over the last two years, um, I've helped more than, uh, more, than, more than 250 of my students go on to publish books. I've helped dozens of them go on to launch podcast seasons. I've helped them put on events with this idea that if you can give them a project that's meaningful, that's personal, and that's challenging, as well as a safe place to do it, they can thrive. And so my goal now with the stuff I'm doing with the Creator Institute at Georgetown and now beyond, it's reached out to people like Tim and even beyond that one, is to give people a community where they can create. And my goal over the next 10 years is to help inspire 10,000 people to uh, create something substantive, a book, a podcast season, or whatever it is. But I think that only happens if we reframe the way that we help people sort of harness that creator. We can't just expect them, hey, you've got the tools, you've got all this stuff, why don't you do it? You have to basically give them something that's personal, that's public, and that's challenging to work on. And again, a book is a great example of that one, but there's plenty of those out there. And then the last thing you really need to do is give them a community of people who coach them, support them, and really help them realize that, that potential. Can I, can I ask you a question, Eric, because I'm always curious about this and <laughs> okay. I've gotten better at this through my um, interviewing people for my book is you mentioned for five years you were in that classroom doing the same thing. What was it that made you change? Yeah, so, you know, it was funny and sometimes the, the world works in mysterious ways, but um, I had this moment when it was, uh, you know, essentially I had my, my, my second daughter. And this moment of time, it was kind of like all these things. Were, so it was June of whatever, 2016, I guess that would be, uh, and, and or July of 2016. And I had this moment where I, I sort of had, like, I started to think about, like, 
what was I actually doing? That, like, would I want her to take my class? It was kind of the question I started asking myself this one. And you know what I thought to myself is I was like, I don't think so. Like, I don't actually think this is making a difference. And so um, it was funny enough, actually, what happened. So this moment when I had that sort of tension, when I was like, am I am I actually doing something that matters, uh, is that I made the decision to actually quit teaching. And so I uh, scheduled a meeting with the head of the entrepreneurship program. I said, listen, like, I've got this young daughter. Like, it's not making that much of a difference. I don't, like, my students aren't going on to start companies. I'm out. And, um, and so the, the, the funny way the world worked out is that his response was, well, you can't quit. And I was like, well, what do you mean I can't quit? And he's like, well, we don't have anyone to replace your class. And like, you know, I had a, one of the most popular entrepreneurship classes. Like, you've got a wait list. You've got to teach this thing. And I was like, fine. So I reluctantly said I would do it. So about, about three weeks before the class was to start, I was sort of begrudgingly doing this sort of thing. And like, I had this moment where I was like, man, like, I'm tired of doing this sort of thing. And I had a conversation with a friend of ours, Shane Mack. And I was sort of complaining about this sort of thing. And I told him, like, I don't know what I want to do. I sort of want to quit. And he's like, well, like, why don't you just do something crazy? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's not like they can fire you. You already quit. So do whatever. And it turned out that both of us in our 20s had had these remarkable experiences when both of us had written and published books. And that had transformed us. And so we both remembered how entrepreneurial there were. I was teaching this entrepreneurship class. And so basically on this, this literally a text conversation, it was like two hours of texting back and forth. We hatched this idea to sort of say, he's like, well, why don't you just make them all write a book and make that be their entrepreneurship project? And so that's literally what I did. I walked into the class three weeks later. I honestly took the exact same syllabus that I had, which was about called launching the venture. And every instance of startup, I replaced with book. That's all I did. And I walked into the same process. And I, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I knew nothing about the publishing industry. I knew nothing about like, I wasn't a writing teacher. Like, true, tr trust me, like writing professors, hate me. They think like, how can you teach this way? You're not a writing person. But I basically said, I'm going to find people. I'm going to give them something challenging to do, something personal and give them something that they can do that's meaningful to them. And sure enough, like from that moment of saying like, I quit to, uh, I think I, I have sort of flipped that whole thing around where I don't think I can quit at this point. You know, when I, when I was studying, I wish I had you as a professor, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you hear that a lot, you know, and it's funny because I'm a PhD dropout and I was very close to doing my dissertation and I just found like everything was just whacked out of us, right? The, yeah. the, I love how you talk about kids because we forget how to play. Yeah. And, and, and so I wonder like, how do you look at how your, I've got a million other questions, but this one's coming out, which is how do you look at how the education that your, your daughters are getting as creators, um, do you go back and look at like what, how they're studying and is it, you think working for them? Like, yeah. So, so it's interesting. And you know, it's a really funny, uh, it's an interesting place for me to be because here I am with, you know, a five and a three and a six month old, right? Like thinking about them. And at the same point I'm teaching, you know, 18 to 28 year olds, like in my sort of formal day job. And so, you know, I'm able to forecast out, like, what do I want to do now to set them up for these sorts of things? And so a lot of it does go back to a couple big sort of insights that I will sort of share with people. So I think, you know, historically, so we as humans, we do things that we believe are going to give us the most benefit for the least amount of work. It's basically what we do, right? And so what that has meant is from the 1970s, uh, this theory came out by this guy named Michael Spence, who won a Nobel Prize for this called the signaling theory. And essentially what he said is that, if you as an employer 
want to maximize your chances of hiring a good one, don't worry about like what sort of what they studied in school, what their grades were. The only thing that matters is how prestigious of a school they went to, which has sort of created this rush towards everyone getting into Ivy League schools and institutions and stuff like that. And so I think what that has led to is this really competitive sort of thing where we sort of believe that once we go to a really great school, the world of opportunity should open up to us, right? That's sort of, that's the perception today. So people believe that it's, if you go to the best schools, the world will open up for you. So that's the sort of first thing that happened. And the second thing that sort of happened is, is about 15 years ago, some researchers wanted to say, okay, like that's been the theory up to date. Like, is that actually holding out? And so what they wanted to do is understand sort of the value of the Ivy League network. So this theory is you go to a really good school, you're around all these smart people, it's going to help you and create these opportunities for you. So what they did is they went out and studied a huge data set of people. And so they call, I'm going I'm to basically pick on the two of you guys here at this point. And so I, they're going to basically say that uh, what they wanted to look at is if someone went to an Ivy, if they got into an Ivy League school, what they did next. So if they got into an Ivy League school and they went to that Ivy League school, or if they got into that Ivy League school and they went to a lower ranked school, that's what they wanted to do. So what they could sort of understand is like, so is it the person or is it the school? And so what they found was really remarkable. They found that if someone, if they had this group of people, the people who went to, got into Ivy League schools, those that went and those that went to a lower ranked school, they wanted to understand what was the difference in earning potential over their careers. Any guesses about how much difference they would earn over the life of their careers between if you went to an Ivy League school, if you got in and went, or you got in and didn't go? Any, any guesses? How much more you would earn? A lot. Zero. 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 No difference at all. I know. Every they, people think it's huge, right? They think it's huge. And so well, I, would, zero I, would, I would just add here that it's, it's a different nuance too, because when I was at Cisco, I would see how the Ivy League, um, you know, what, pay, what people are paying for is the network and the community. That's right. And, so so we, we believe that, right? But it's, it's what the research has found is that it's the person, not the school. And so I think so more access because of it. It, it doesn't actually play out that way, <laughs> right? So, so well, even if you have the, <laughs> yeah, well, but if, so, so that's what we believe though, right? So if we believe the network is so valuable, it should pay itself out, right? In terms of our earning potential, but it, it doesn't. That's what it's sort of saying is that because you have the network doesn't mean the network actually pays out to you. So that's what they're finding here is getting in and going is, you know, like it's, it's about the individual, not the sort of the, the network that you get from it. So I think what that says to what that should say to you and what I think about for my daughters in those ways. So hearing all those things, we've really overemphasized that how important it is to go to the most prestigious school you can, regardless of the cost, right? In that sort of way. I think what I'm sort of finding today with my daughters is what I really want them to do is I want them to pick and tackle things that sort of fit within these three criteria that are important. And I think this is for my own children, my students and people who are in their career is I want them to work on things that are challenging. That's the first thing. It's like this idea here of working on things that are, you know, everyone's got to get A's. We all got to get great. The, the 10 place metal thing, like just work on things that are hard and who cares about how that ranks out the other things. But is this challenging to you? That's the first and most important thing. The second thing that I think is most important to you is that you want to work on things that are personal. And so I don't believe in this idea of majors as it matters. Only like 27% of people work in a job where their major is required or important to that role at all. We don't, we don't, majors don't signal where we're going to work our career in. So number one, work on something that's hard. Number two, work on something that's personal. If you are interested in cryptocurrency and the developing world, take classes in that one, work on those things, work on projects related to it. And the third one is do your work in public. 
you want to be sharing what you're learning on blog posts in sort of, you know, webinars you're doing and these things like those are the three things. So when I think about my daughters, right, I want them to be working on projects that are not the easiest sort of thing here. And I want them to do these sorts of ways that are like, you know, if one of them likes to do perler bees, and the other one wants to do coloring, great, do what you want to do. And then let's put it up there on the on the wall so people can see it and sort of give them feedback on it. But I think those are the big three things. And I think that's what plays out in all of education today is, you know, what, what I find when I look at, you know, I studied the Forbes 30 under 30. I wanted to study, there's 5,000 alums of the 30 under 30. And I wanted to see what are today's most successful young people doing? All these people are, you know, been recognized for their success. Did they go to the best schools? No, turned out like less than 20%, less than 15% of them went to a top 10 school that made the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Did they go to graduate school? No, more of them actually dropped out of college or never went than went to graduate school. So schooling wasn't the thing that set them up. Did they start companies? That wasn't it either. The key thing that they all did is they all had this moment where they created something that was personal, that was public, and that was challenging. They were the ones who were publishing books. They were doing podcast seasons. They were doing video courses. They were doing events. They were doing conferences. And so I think that's the bigger thing that you're seeing today is that I think the shift that's going to happen over the next decade is this movement away from this focus on where you did the work and what you did. I think that we're moving from a world that values the resume that begins to value the portfolio. And so as I think about my daughters and everyone, I think we all need to be thinking about what can we show to our potential employers, to our partners, what can we put out there that people can believe and understand? And so that's a long answer to what you sort of asked there, but I do think this important thing that we should all be looking at, how do we wind up providing evidence of what we're doing in public is kind of the future of where everything's going in education. Yeah, and I think, I think a big piece of it is how do we allow people to be creators versus workers. Yeah, um, that's right. And that's really an important thing. I mean, Tim used to say to me, you know, when a baby is born, do you say congratulations, you have another worker in the world. And so much of the narrative today and the stories that we say, and there's so much like competition about it as well, that um, an ability to be able to bring together the next level of creators and teach folks about the beauty and failing and the trial and errors and when you get gifts you know because you didn't win that or you didn't get this or or people didn't like what you posted in public mm -hmm. um and that you could learn from it and and looking at it rather than like i think we need to demystify this whole notion of success yes and it's really fascinating because you know i, I come from the de the tech world and I had friends who, you know, came from Brazil and, and they had a job offer between Google or Apple and, and they couldn't get their grade, you know, their their average because the universities there were different. So right. they took they took the job with a tech company that, you know, didn't care. And now right. it's changing so much that they don't care about the grades as much. And so I think there's this whole evolution and hopefully revolution because a lot of the foundations that we have that we're building more and more stuff on are, are rotting and they're not sustainable for where we're headed. And so the creation piece becomes much more important in the questions that we ask and, and, and the energy that we give. And I, I love the fact that, you know, you have an ability to, to influence so many people in that thinking and moving away from the cookie cutters or the template of, of this is like just the story you just shared about, you know, quitting and the gift that it gave you and, yeah. and it gave a lot of other people is amazing. Yeah. 
Are, are you working, do you have like other um, people in the profession who come and ask you how they can revamp their courses? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, to your point, it's, it's, I think what, so I had a student who shared this with me that I thought was really is profound. And so a lot of the time that I spend now teaching is, you know, I do spend time like still lecturing and coaching, but a lot of the way that I sort of shifted my teaching has been around a big insight, which is that poor, poor thing is that sort of we need the information to solve the problem immediately in front of us. And so what, what one of my students shared to me is he's like, listen, I love your lectures, I love your class, but I get more value out of a 15 minute personal phone call with you than 10 hours of lectures. And I thought to myself, I like sort of, it, it shocked me a little bit, but it made me also rethink how I spend my time. And so I, you know, when I teach my classes and part of the reason I've tried to think about how could I wind up, you know, my goal is to be able to teach a thousand people a year in a way that's very personal, like that is really authentic and really helps them change their lives. And so what that means is you have to develop a different style rather than teaching. I call myself coaching, like that's what I'm doing. And so I think that what you're, you have to see is you have to shift the way that you do the education away from this sort of like consumer, you know, sort of like broadcaster to consumer model into this coach and sort of like recipient sort of model or sort of that way. And so what I, what I would tell you is that the pushback on that one has been really hard because I think that we're, we're not structured sort of from an educational system to understand how that works well. And so for me, if you just think about this from my standpoint, I teach a class of, let's just say a class of mine at Georgetown has 40 students. So in a typical world, you know, you go and you lecture for three hours and whatever you do some office hours and you're done, right? Well, my students don't really grow as creators that much if I just sort of lecture and walk away. And so if you really want to drive impact, you first off have to make the choice to sort of say, all right, like I'm going to reshift how I allocate my time. And so now what I do is in this current semester, I spend 45 minutes per person one-on-one -on -one with them. I do a 15 minute call talking about their topic, their podcast topic, and then a 30 minute positioning call. And then at the end, I spend, you know, how much time it takes to read that sort of thing. So if you flip the whole thing around there, the time aspect of it has really changed. And so going back to your point there, people come to me and say, Eric, I want to have more impact. I want to change my students' lives. And I would tell you like, I've had, I've heard, and this is not trying to brag, but just to be honest with you, I've heard more than a hundred times from my students, you've changed my life. And so every time I get it is the most impressive and the, the most impactful thing I've ever heard. But I, I heard it zero times before. I've heard it a hundred times now. And so what that has forced me to do though, is remember that like, if you want that outcome of like have really changing people's lives and turning them into creators, you also have to remember that you then have to shift your relationship with the way you teach. So I can't be just a broadcaster and a consumer and expect them to change. I have to shift into a coach. So that has meant I need to shift the whole way that I teach. And so the whole model has also meant that I also now take what I do at Georgetown and I've had to sort of syndicate it more broadly. So I'm teaching a group of about 200 authors outside of Georgetown this semester in the same sort of way that I'm doing it. So the, the broad way to answer that question is, are people seeing the shift? I would say they want the, they want the outcome, but I don't think that they want to sort of change the, the methods yet. And so I was really shocked. So this class that I teach was named 2018's most innovative class in the entire world. Like it won this fancy award, which was awesome, right? And so I thought to myself, this is amazing everyone's going to want to teach this thing. Like just step back and let all the professors come to me. I've had no one pick it up. Zero people. It's not because that I don't think they don't believe, but it's just like, 
it's so much more work to sort of shift from what they're doing to what they, they want to do. So I think we're at like the very, very early days of shifting these sorts of things. You're seeing it like, you know, some examples that I've seen sort of that I really like. There's a guy named David Pirelli who does this program called, um, uh, uh, it's a writer's program for sort of creating long form articles. But I think he does a really nice job um, on that, that sort of one. I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see education shifting around a little bit to where you see more of these coach-based learning models to, to happen. But I think it's going to take time. I think we're in the very, very early days. I mean, people are shocked that I'm, you know, coaching 500 to 800 authors a year. It's a shocking number to sort of do, but it's only because I've been able to like, I have to extract myself from the old way and plug into an entirely new way. And, you know, if it's any consolation, I've been bounced from four different departments at Georgetown because they can't quite fit me in of where I should go. Like this isn't a business school class. This really isn't strategy. Does this fit in here? And so it's one of those things that I think the, I'm continuing to focus on the outcome. Like I said, my goal is 10,000 creators in the next 10 years. And so I think that to do that one, you have to be willing to sort of say, how do we wind up doing it? Cause I don't think I could get 10,000. I think I'd have to serve a million people to get 10,000 creators out of the consumer way versus sort of this idea of this coached way. I think you can get, get there in a reality way. So sorry, that was another, keep giving you long answers, but you keep asking very deep questions. Sorry to have to do it. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious because you said other people look at what you do as being more work, right? And I've been around you long enough where I know it is work, but yeah. you never make it seem like it's work. That's right. And I'm just kind of curious, did it ever feel like work as you were going through this? And if it didn't, why do you think that is that that happened in you and other people view it as work? Yeah, so I think I think what this is a little bit is I think so I would tell you the first semester that I did it, it felt like uh, a ton of work. <laughs> it was like it was like it overwhelmed my life. But I, I think what the problem in that thing was is that I was sort of playing into the old model of teaching and that I had to do everything to sort of support the student. And so I found myself again, my, my goal is to help people finish in, in their, in this sort of five month program with me, whether it's in the class or outside of it to finish a first draft manuscript. So my experience with you, Tim is I want to help you finish a first draft manuscript. So the first time I taught it, I was doing everything. I was the one who was sort of like teaching class every week. I was the one who was reading everyone's stuff. I was giving editing feedback along the way. I was giving coaching feedback and I was basically doing everything. And so, yeah, I was sort of felt like I was like, it felt like so much work and also so much pressure on me. And so what I did is I stepped back and I sort of said, all right, how can I like break up the pieces where I can add the most value and the parts that I, I don't need to add the most value on? And so, you know, what I started to realize is like, well, what if we hired professional editors and that you had an editor? And what if we brought in other people to do some of the administrative work? And so what I think has to happen is that in some ways I had to check my ego at the door and I had to say, listen, here's the thing that I am the best in the world at, or I'm really, really good at. And that's like, you know, the positioning call with an author. I'm really, really good at helping people figure out how to position that thing. And I'm really good at helping people with topics. I'm not really good at some of the other things. And so how can I find a way to slot in someone that will work? Now, the reason that's challenging is if you think about the educational system, right? I had to go to Georgetown and sort of say, hey, listen, I want to hire someone else to do my part of my job as a professor, right? Like I'm teaching this class. I want you to sort of hire someone to do a part of my job. And so that like, it's like, wait a second here, but you're the professor. And so I think that's kind of what we have to think about when we create a creator, right? Is that like, why is it even reasonable that I should have to sort of do everything in this way? Why can't we break these pieces up? And so I think what I've started to realize is that 
you want people, if you want to, if, if people, if it's true what people say, if my, if my best thing is like if 15 minutes of time with me is better than 10 lectures, then I better damn well do everything I can to make sure I maximize those 15 minute slots so that I can support as many 15 minute slots as possible to drive as much impact as I can. And so I think it's just sort of reframing the whole thing to step back and sort of say, how do I make sure that what matters matters? And I think the biggest thing is that we as educators, or, or we in a lot of ways, think that like push-based educational content works. And it really just doesn't. We just, it's, it's fine. I even learned something else that was interesting, right? Like I would do these lectures and I would sort of ask people like, were the lectures good? And they were like, yeah, they were good, but I, I really looked at it when I needed it later. And so I started realizing, I was like, well, I'm gonna do the education each week, but instead I put out every one of my lectures up on YouTube. I break into small chunks and I let people search for what they need when they need it. Remember, like if you're writing a book, if Tim's stuck on sort of how to do the hooks of his things, he doesn't care about it. Like if he's not writing a hook right then, maybe it's interesting, but he really needs that question when it's like one o'clock at night, he's trying to finish this chapter, he's stuck. So why does he have to wait for me to be doing that? So it's just about the whole way we have to reframe it. And remember that like the creator is the center here. The creator is the person. We need to do everything to take away distraction, to help them create on their terms and to help them succeed. And I think when you do that one, again, you let your ego go and you rebuild the whole thing it's sort of like, it's so obvious it's dumb, right? It's like, it makes so much perfect sense, but it's, I think that the, in some ways we just, you know, we sort of, we do what we've always done. And so like, when you do something different, people are like, well, it sort of seems like that's gonna be too much work or that's not gonna sort of fit within our system or schedules in that way. Yeah, a big, a big part of it is we're so disconnected from nature right now. And, you know, if, if you're in nature, everything flows, you know, there's yep. birth and death and change all the time. And I think there's some, somewhere in the education system that, and also in business that we created this fear of change that, you know, and for me, like being safe is risky. Because yeah. Going into your comfort zone could be really risky because you're not opening yourself up to the opportunities and what's possible. Have you and, heard that there's a quote from Chase Jarvis? He recently wrote a book. Uh, and he recently said, uh, today is the riskiest time in history to take the safe path, which I think is, is so true, right? It's like, it's the fact that like, you know, with, with more sort of with machines coming to take some of the, you know, those sort of tasks. And I think with some of those things that we've always done starting to change, it's the people that are thriving today are not doing things that are magical. They're just doing things that are slightly better than what we've always done. And those people sort of seem to be magical because it's slightly different. And that's, I think what's so to, to that point is why does it seem risky because not everyone else is doing it? I think that's actually like the reverse of sorts of things, right? Like it's funny, you know, people ask me, you know, and I get this question quite a bit when I'm talking is like, so Eric, do you think people should go to college? And, and, you know, because I mean, I sort of have this message. It's a little bit like, you know, find your own path, these sorts of things. And I absolutely believe that for 99.9% .9 of people that would go to college, they should. College is a great thing. I think it's a great way to learn and the earning from it is, is better. The key thing though, to think about is that it's not necessarily like, you know, what college you go to, but it's what you do there. And it's that you use that experience to build your own major, to build your portfolio and those sorts of things, because like, the companies that you want to work at, they don't interview on campus anymore. They don't come in those sorts of ways. And the job that your second job you're going to have aren't going to come in that way. And so I think that this like traditional college path that we've been on is this very linear thing. And the reality is, you know, I like to tell people that, you know, the traditional path in life has been the escalator. 
right? You get on this sort of thing and you expect it to go up. Today is the video game, right? You pick up the controller and you can like jump around and go different places. You can go backwards. You know, it's Mario Brothers. That's what our life is. And so you better be able to eat a bunch of mushrooms. You better be able to like jump up and down, go down pipes. Like the world isn't going to come in this linear way anymore that you do these sorts of things. And so you're going to have to be able to like have those tools to sort of thrive in that way. And I don't think it's, it's again, I don't think it's risky anymore. I think that it's sort of risky to not do it. <laughs> That's what I think is happening. And it's why I think that like the, the students that I love the most, that I think are the most interesting are, are the ones who are like, you know, they're the ones who are starting their own student club about cryptocurrency because there's no classes. They're the ones who are out there doing that internship that takes them to Africa for a semester that's unpaid, but it fits within their story. Like, they're doing things that are, that are interesting. They're the ones who are going to the community college for two years because they know the economics of it is that no one's gonna care that they spent three years at Brown or they spent you know, one year at Brown, right? They're not gonna care. They're, they're just people who are, are sort of, they have the controller and they're driving where their, their player's going as opposed to the other way around. I think, I think you hit it, which is like, it's not just education, it's life. Right. I yep. mean, the whole story of life in a, in a really meaningful way is changing. Mm -hmm. And there's just like, I think we live in an incredible time right now, um, filled with opportunity. And the thing is, is like the programming that you have um, in your mind is, is where the shifts are happening because mm -hmm. we treat what's abundant, which is opportunity, often with a mindset. And again, I'm talking to mainstream, not, not everybody. Mm -hmm. with a, a mindset of uh, scarcity, right? There's only so much. And then we treat what is, uh, is scarce, which is natural resources. There's only so much water. There's only so many natural resources with a mindset of abundance, like with this right. vast culture. And so I think the creator within and unleashing, with, unleashing it is about, you know, understanding that we may not have created the oceans and we may not have created the sun, but we created the stock market and taxation and university or college. Sorry, I never went to school in the States. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and marriage. I mean, we created all these things and we created pizza and the internet and we're so powerful that we can create healthy systems. We could change how we learn. We could change how we connect and we could really bring back this notion of trust, which is my next question is I feel that on a lot of levels, trust is, is broken. Um, yeah. You look at all the surveys and, and data that's out there, but at a, at a creator level, it's about trusting yourself. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things I feel that you're doing through um, having this impact on so many uh, amazing people is how do you build the trust with yourself so then you could trust others? Because we learn to trust everyone else before we learn to trust ourselves. Yeah. And then we lose the touch of creation. Yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. And, and I, I, you know, um, sort of when, when, when psychologists have sort of studied humans, there's this pattern that they've, they've seen for the past sort of century or so. And that was that uh, typically people would, you know, sort of go to school that their parents would approve of, they take jobs that people would approve of. And this sort of fits into our, our need to be part of our tribe and sort of make our others proud. And what would happen then is, is typically there was this moment um, that happened in most people's 40s and 50s called individu individuation, where we would sort of stop wanting to be part of something and be our own individual. And the name for that has become the midlife crisis. So this idea that happens at that point is like this idea that we stop wanting to be part of a group and we start wanting to be an individual. 
And so that has been something that we've known for a long time. Well, what has started to happen over the last like sort of five to seven years is we've seen this moving earlier. So now we have a term that we call the quarter life crisis, right? And people like will joke about it and sort of like, okay, snowflake and all that sort of stuff. It's the totally wrong is issue. It's actually just part of a general thing that's going on where the world is becoming individualized. And, and that has happened with the internet in sort of big ways is where historically we were not able to be anything other than sort of, so, sort of the institutions that accepted us. So I was an alum from this school. I was, a, you know, I used to work at this company. I belong to this church. Like that's how we defined ourselves. Today, I could Google anyone on this chat and quickly know things about them as an individual. So I think that's what's happening, right? So that sort of thing is happening. So as this individuation is going up, we're also seeing a decline in the trust of institutions as a credibility giver. So if you think about it in this way, right, sort of companies today say that company, that sort of colleges are not preparing their employees today. So trust in their ability to educate us is going down. Companies are sort of saying that the consumers trust them less in these ways. So what's happening is we're seeing a shift from being able to trust companies as brand into individuals as brand. So it's why, for example, the, the story I like to tell is of PayPal. We understand PayPal as this company that moves money around. Well, PayPal had a very, very negative reputation that was going on that year, and they knew this. And so what happened? Suddenly, their CEO became the face of PayPal and is out there now doing a podcast where he shows himself doing martial arts and all these sorts of things. So I, I think what's happening is maybe in some ways is this sort of rebound to what we were before. This is your question about trust. We sort of started trusting institutions because we couldn't trust individuals. We only had to trust them based on their affinities. We trusted them if they went to really good schools, if they worked at really good companies, if they belonged to the same clubs and churches as us, right? As those institutions have started to become somewhat you know, muted in their ability to do that one, we trust the individual. And so this ability to sort of trust yourself is an important thing. And, and that's why I go back to that point about what I love doing more than anything is helping do things, helping people do things that are challenging. And so you guys both understand this as authors um, and Tim as a sort of soon to be published author here, doing something like writing a book is challenging, right? The data says that 2% of people that start a book ever finish, right? So to the point when you start a book, odds are not very good in your favor, right? And so the obvious thing to sort of say here is that, well, I don't trust myself, I'm not gonna finish, which is why a lot of people don't. Now, what's interesting is when you help creators realize that sort of potential, what happens? Number one, if you accomplish this thing, so Tim, for example, now, once he's published this book, now he's done something that 98% of other people fail at. So what this unlocks in him is his growth mindset. And the growth mindset from, uh, is sort of this principle that we all have that we believe that we can do anything. We can sort of, again, we are a potential, we can grow into whatever it is. So number one, that's one of the keys of success from Carol Dweck. Successful people have the growth mindset. So when you do something challenging, you trust yourself that you can do the next challenging thing and the more challenging thing. The second thing that happens then is now that Tim has published this book, he's in this 2%. And so the external world suddenly says, wow, Tim did something hard, took him a long period of time. And so what this unlocks is the perception that Tim is gritty. Angela Duckworth's book talks about that successful people are gritty. So creators have this really powerful thing. And what I find is that the best creators, particularly young creators, they attack these projects, these creation events, I call them, that take them about a year. They do things that are more challenging than sort of the, the general world would think about. And when they complete them, they're public about it. And so this idea of what happens in that thing is that suddenly now, 
Tim has mentally changed himself. And at the same time, Tim's perception by others has changed. Those two things happen. So to your point about sort of trust is I think we need to do things that build up our own trust in ourselves. We need to do challenging things so we grow, but then also you need to do them in a public way so that your trust grows as well. Like now suddenly people don't need to trust what school Tim went to or what company they had. All they have to do is pick up his book. They can read and sort of say, hey, this guy actually has some really interesting thoughts. He's put them down and he shared them in that sort of way. So I think that's kind of the big things that I sort of believe in this ability to sort of regain trust is that we need to start to position ourselves as the brands of trust as individuals. And I don't really believe in this world of like personal branding. I'm not a fan of that one. I am a big believer in sort of your personal voice. And I think that you need to amplify your voice by doing things that, again, going back to it again, are personal, are challenging, and are public. That's the way that we elevate our voice and that we also elevate people's ability to sort of listen to our voice and believe us. And I think that's kind of what happens and what I'm trying to teach is to give people a framework to succeed, right? If, you know, going back to the sort of thing here of like 2% of people that start books can't finish, that's a bad place to start something all alone without sort of the guide rules behind you. So I want to create safe places for anyone like Tim or others to sort of be part of a community, to have coaching and have a process so that, you know, you stack the deck in your favor. So then when you do it, you, you are part of that 2%. You, you, you give yourself a better shot at it, but the benefits that accrue to you are, are massive. I was going to say that was, I mean, you mentioned it right at the end, but I think that was a huge component for, for me was the whole, you know, being surrounded by others that were going through the same process that didn't have the experience that we had you and, and the editors and, and, you know, your assistant to be there to support and acknowledge the fact that this is perfectly natural, right? This is a good feeling. This is, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. And, and I think that's, to me, that's been like the most challenging aspect, I think, for other things that I've taken on. And I know each of us are different, you know, as you said, it, it's, it's this individual and we all learn differently and we all take away things differently. But, you know, I'm just like thinking, what advice do you have for people out there that aren't wanting to become authors, right, as creators, but wanting to create something else in the world? And how can they find these safe spaces and these communities and these mentors to, to really help them bring their creation to life and not let them feel like they're out there on this island all alone. Because I know that's how I felt so much of my life. And I know other people that I talk to have felt this way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, I'll go back to some of my research is what I, I think is kind of helpful in that way. And, and again, the, the reason I've picked books and podcasts and events is because I've done them all. <laughs> I teach those ones because I have done them, right? Not because there's anything magical about it, but I found there's sort of, the, I found nine common creation events when I studied sort of young success stories. So then I looked at the 5,000 Forbes 30 to 30 and, you know, I'll give you some of the examples of them, but I think, you know, the most important thing is like to, to do what you enjoy. Right? Like, you know what I mean? If you're a writer, do something that's writing. If you like listening to podcasts, do a podcast. If you like video, then do a video course. If you like, you know, if you like research, do sort of publishing research. If you like music, put on a concert. If you like art, do that. So I think the idea behind this one is we should sort of do the things that we enjoy doing. We should just do them in a way that's going to maximize the value that's created from them. And so I think to this point about it, the, the, some of the key things that I found is that typically there's sort of three components that go to these sort of creation events. Number one, they're things that take on average six to 12 months. So there's some research behind that one. Number one is that anything that takes you less than six months, people don't believe it's sort of challenging enough to really be like all that matter enough. And it's a funny thing like in the way that we, but that six month mark is like, wow, you invested six months in it. It must be important to you. 
On the other extreme, something that takes you more than 12 months, the chances of you succeeding in a project starts to drop very quickly. <laughs> and so this sweet spot of it's like hard enough, but not something you won't quit is kind of important. So for example, I would say, if you're someone who says, hey, listen, I wanna do a, a podcast. I tell people never to say, I wanna write, do a podcast. I say, I wanna launch a podcast season and decide that you're going to do something that is 12 episodes, one every other week, and you're gonna put out a season of it. Now, what that does for you, it does two things, right? Number one, it gives you something that has enough substance behind it that people believe. But two, and here's the other part of it, you finish. So when you finish your season, you get that sort of satisfaction of completing it. So the one question I get asked all the time is, Eric, I'm thinking about doing something to create, to create something. I'm going to start a blog. And I tell them, please, for the love of God, do not start a blog. Please, like, just don't do it. It's the worst thing you can do. And here's why. Raise your hand, anyone here in the audience here who has a blog that they haven't posted on in the last month. All right, like I'm sure probably everyone has this sort of thing, right? We've all started a blog. The problem is, is that a blog is something that we sort of have to do in perpetuity or it's like we don't finish it. And so it basically plays into this failure complex where we like start something that we can never actually finish. Instead of doing a blog, what I would sort of say is I'm going to do a 10 part article series which allows you to sort of have some depth behind it. It allows you to have a finish line. And most importantly, it allows you to show something that's holistic and something that's meaningful and substantive. So I think that's sort of the most important thing that I would sort of say, if you don't have this sort of, you know, the way I would frame it, if you're, you know, trying to figure out what to create 2020, you're going to become a creator. The key things I would sort of say is lean into what you enjoy doing, consuming, creating, whatever it is. If you like buying stuff on Etsy, then could you become a creator on Etsy? Great, whatever it is. Like, that's the first thing is sort of lean into those things. If you love podcasts, can you be create a podcast season? If you love writing, could you write a book or an article series? The second thing that I think is important is you have to make sure there's something that you can finish. So I am going to do this series. And usually the way that I describe that is put a number in front of whatever you're doing. I'm going to finish a 200 page book. I'm going to do a 12 part article series. I'm going to do a 12 part video course, whatever it is. So put a number in front of it. And then the last thing I would sort of say is sort of try not to do something that you expect or that you need it to make money for you to be a success. I think that's the other third thing that people really do is like creators just create things. And after the creation happens, it sort of spawns other things from there a little bit. But I think there's this pressure in these sorts of things. So I think those are the things is, kind of lean into what you enjoy doing, consuming, whatever it is, make sure it's something that's finishable. And again, that sort of six to 12 month kind of mark is what it is. And then, the, you know, the, the big thing in, the, in all these sorts of things is just make sure that it's something that you are excited about and that sort of fits into kind of wherever you're headed. And to your point about finding safe spaces to do these sorts of things, I think it's, you know, my last piece of advice on whatever you create is, is I think that uh, you need to be willing to put a little skin in the game. And so I think that's one of the things that I learned. So my deal with Georgetown is I teach like this open version of this class here and I teach it, I, I teach it for free. I don't sort of charge for the class, but I make everyone pay for their own editor. The reason is simple is like, if you're not willing to put in a couple hundred bucks to basically hire an editor, you're not really serious about being a creator. You have to put some of your money where your mouth is. So I would say if you're going to do these sorts of things, like get a group of friends together and every one of you chip in, you know, 500 bucks and we're going to basically hire an editor to help us on this thing or, you know, get a video editor and we're going to produce this thing together. But I think you do want to make sure you have some skin in the game to make sure you're serious about it. Otherwise, I think there's this sort of thing of like, well, is it really a priority in that sort of regard? So I'd say community is important, but I also think that you have to have like pay for expertise and coaching to help you succeed.
I think a lot of that is, is the future of, you know, people also going out and, and working on their own, but still wanting to be connected with other people and looking at, you know, the models, like a lot of the models right now of starting a business are really hard for people to fit in because they don't want to be a nonprofit. They don't want to be a for-profit. And, you know, there's a lot, I think we can learn from the cannabis industry about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Many what things they we can learn. <laughs> but what they did because they were, they didn't, you know, they had certain constraints that they had to think about how they created in the, in a different way. And I mean, I think I think that um, a lot of what you're doing. Um, I just did my interview with you for my book, by the way, and yep. uh, <laughs> thank you for that because um, it's all about the creation piece. And yep. Tim and I did a did a did a talk uh, with a bunch of educators um, last month, and it was interesting because these were like high school teachers, and and many of them were talking about the fact that you know they're preparing a whole generation of kids for jobs that won't exist. Yeah. And my question is, who cares what jobs exist or not? What's the world gonna look like? Mm -hmm. And so there's a deeper question here about creation of how, cause like there's, there's a million people watching, I think there's probably a billion people, Eric, watching you kind of like in fear going like, you know, and, and the more that you open the door the more you're going to let other people follow. They're not going to be, you know, you're one of the pioneers out there. And what the world needs right now with 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet is more pioneers, more people willing to take that first step. Mm -hmm. And so that creation piece becomes really, really important. And how do we, how do we shift conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of it, you know, I think part of that point, I think the kind of more has put the question out there a little bit about this idea of co-creating is as I do think that people's vision of what they imagine their head of creating something is like is very different than reality. And so, you know, when I when I talk to people about writing a book, what do they think it looks like? Uh, they oftentimes have this vision where the writer goes off into the woods in this cabin that doesn't have internet and they sit in front of a typewriter and they type like for nine months and they come out with like this magic manuscript that says my manuscript and their name on it, right? Like that's what they think. And then suddenly like success happens. And, and I think what's so interesting about the idea of creating things really is that it's not done in isolation, right? I mean, I think it's, it's the interesting thing here about, you know, having a conversation, you know, to, to write a book there's only, you can probably write a short story based on what you know, unless you're like, you know, have a really amazing life story. But for the most part, you have to involve other people in these sorts of things. And so I even tell people, and I'll sort of touch on your sort of question, maybe in a, in a different way than you asked a little bit. One of the biggest sort of fallacies I see out there is this idea of mentorship. There's so much emphasis on I need a mentor, I need a mentor, I need a mentor. And what's really interesting is that basically what mentorship is or what it's become is I need an advice giver. Now, here's the thing. I don't need someone's advice just because they have a proximity to me. Just because we're in the same room, why should I listen to your advice? Then I should go out and access this world of 7 billion people who might be able to give me perfect advice. So I think if you want advice, like Google it. That's my first piece of feedback on that one. What you really want is you want to create more collaborators. That's what you want to do. And so what you want to be able to do is go out and sort of say, hey, listen, when push comes to shove, who can I call and say, hey, listen, I've got this project opportunity. Would you be able to describe our working together to sort of say that I'm something there? And I think that's what's interesting today is that, you know, we go back to this idea of the value of the Harvard network or the Ivy League network that I talked about. 
it's not just that you have access to these people, it's that, that these people have expertise and experience of working with you to be able to access their networks as well. And so again, it's not just the fact that we went to the same school that matters, it's just that we did something together and I, I have proof behind those sorts of things. So I think, you know, to this point of how this sort of grows from there, I think that like the best thing that creators can do is involve other people in their projects and then tell them, listen, you can do this too, right? You can be a part of this as well. I, I think that going back to this sort of thing, I, I don't think I could sit out here, you know, if there's a billion people watching this one, I could say, hey, go be a creator that this would work. What I've learned, and again, in my experience, is, you know, I've, I basically say anyone who's interested in writing a book or doing a podcast season, um, I'll get on the phone with you and we'll do a 15 minute call to see if we can brainstorm a topic that is worth doing. And, and so if I might talk to a million people, like and say, hey, this is, everyone can do it, you can believe it, 0.001% of those people will sort of listen to my words and do it based on what I've seen, right? But if I get on the phone with you and sort of I, I sit down with Tim and I talk to him for 15 minutes and say, what do you care about? What matters to you? And sort of unlock these sorts of things together, suddenly now you've collaborated. And that collaborative thing sort of, again, brings someone to the creator community. So I think that what I would say my view as a creator is that I'm not only focused on building creators, but I'm also focusing on building creators who collaborate with others and bring more people in. And so, you know, people always ask me like, how are you, how do you have so many authors who want to do this one? I always tell people like, listen, find someone else who you think needs to be a creator and let's get them in this sort of thing too. And it, that's the way it goes. You know, I, I just, I just don't think there's enough marketing we can do in the world to convince people that they could do it unless someone that's important to them says, hey, I believe in you. I know you could do it. And when that happens, something really magical happens. When you have that moment, when, you know, when I have a student who sort of, I say, listen, like, I believe you've got a special book here. Or I believe you've got a special podcast here. And they believe me. Suddenly, like, that's the point where we're going to sort of see them 10, 15, 20 years from now doing something pretty remarkable. I think that also shifts the conversation from audience to co-creation. Mm -hmm. Like as an author, I don't see the readers. I see the readers being co-creators yep. and I try to encourage like follow up afterwards and, and conversation, which we're not very good at. Mm -hmm. And so I think even like just changing some of the language that we have um, becomes really important because the only time you should really have an audience is if you're lecturing as a professor, Right. or at a concert or at the theater or the ballet or, or but now we've got like this notion of the expert in the front of the room mm -hmm. and then people get confused about what the creator is so thank you right. so much for a lot of this because i think it's a mindset shift that people need to have and the language is really important and i love the fact that you're you're pissing off a bunch of writing professors <laughs> they don't care for me very much i'll say one thing that i want to just point on that one that i think is a really interesting point so you said this idea of of sort of sort of separating this idea from the creator and the audience in this sort of way um i'm a huge fan of taylor swift not only her music but also as a person and i love taylor swift for a whole bunch of reasons like she gives no care about pissing off everyone in the music industry right now, which I love in this one. But I think what's interesting, so go back to 15-year-old Taylor Swift, not famous, you know, told that she was a country music singer, like not going to have this sort of thing. And so, you know, her, her manager, she asked her manager, very precocious 15-year-old, I want to go platinum. And which is like really hard to do, right? Going platinum means you sell 500,000 albums, which is a lot. And so her manager told her something really interesting. He said, listen, if you want to sell 500,000 records, you need to shake hands and hug 500,000 people. And to her credit, she did. 
Every single show she would do at a church parking lot, a county fair, she would spend three to five hours afterwards talking to every single person, signing every person that sort of way. And so I think that what creators really do is they create connection, right? They create this real human connection that is so, so, so powerful. And it's not just about creating something you push out there. It's that idea that you create collaboration and, and you know coordination together. I think that's kind of what's so powerful about creators is that they don't do these things alone. They bring people into it. And it's even something really interesting about what we've learned about this publishing process that Sir Tim's going through is that, you know, what I urge everyone to do is this idea of like creating these early fans of yours and, you know, to don't sell books right away, but sell an experience where they become a beta reader. They become part of the journey with you. Those first 100, 200 people, they help you pick your cover. They read your early drafts and give you feedback. They out there like helping you at speaking opportunities. And like people sort of think, well, that's really weird. No one's going to want to do that one. So many people are excited to be a part of this thing because they don't know what it's like to create. They've not felt that rush. And so feeling that opportunity to read something early and to sort of comment on things and be a part of it is so, so powerful. So creating is just community. It's a way to like bring people into it. And then my hope is by creating these micro communities, you know, so, you know, whatever, if, if, if Tim has 200 people in his community that are reading his book and giving feedback on it, hopefully some of those people get inspired that they can do it too. And that this sort of spreads in that sort of way. So I think it's like, you know, we shift the relationship of creating to not worry about being macro creators, but micro, like these ones that can kind of influence a community of a couple hundred people and maybe a thousand people and maybe more, but some ways we just have to not try to sort of, not try to go for the home run. It doesn't have to be a New York Times bestseller. It just has to influence a handful of people to be amazing. Love that, love that. And totally, totally with you. I mean, I think, I think again, it's like, did you, did you, were you born to be a worker or a creator? <laughs> were you born to be a best-selling author or to like love what you're writing and have it influence people's lives in whatever way it can be? And that's a beautiful thing, so. Being inspired, I think this is what you also need to do is expose yourself to people that do lift you up instead of just being by yourself and feeling like the weight is all on your shoulders because, I think that's what it takes to be a creator is you need people around you that are willing to lift you up and don't feel like you're alone and have all the weight on your own back. So thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Uh, we're super excited that you're here. Um, Eric, any last words or? No, I think, I think just, you know, I think now's a really interesting time of the year. Like 2020 is just around the corner. And so I think, um, you know, sort of, set something that you can finish. And I think I'll give this analogy for people as we leave on this one is that, you know, a lot of people say, I'm going to get fit this year. I'm going to get to the gym this year. And, you know, the numbers are not very good that that actually happens. So I would tell you to rethink what you want to do as be a creator and say, I'm going to run a 10K this year, meaning I'm going to go out and start to write 10 blog posts and just give yourself a milestone. I'm going to go out and sort of you know, record 10 interviews and just sort of share them out there. But like, give yourself something that you can finish. And, and I do just think as humans, this idea of like unlocking this like sort of bug is you got to finish it. You can't sort of set yourself up for failure. And so I think as you're planning this year, be intentional about make it personal, you know, make it something that you can finish. And most importantly, make it something that it doesn't have to be something massive. It has to be something for you. And so that's what I would sort of tell people as they're planning, just to give yourself a goal that you can finish and make it challenging, like certainly, but also make it something that's not something that you can, if you don't, no one should say I'm signing up to be a podcaster. I want to try podcasting and try a season of it and be done. No one should say my goal is to be an author. I want to finish a book and see what it looks like from there. But that's, I think sometimes is label yourself by something you can finish. And especially as you're planning for this next year, make it something that you're excited to do, find people around you who can do it. And then like, 
let's just go do something awesome. So let's go do it. I mean, why are you still watching this? We should be out there. <laughs> creating. Man.